As we open God's Word, I would love it if you have your Bibles to turn to Psalm 42, and we will be covering Psalms 42 and 43. Um, they, they seem to be a unit. Perhaps originally it was one psalm. They certainly are intended to go together. The, the structure of the lament um, it continues from 42 to 43, and there is also this repeated refrain twice in 42 and 43 that, that bound them, bind them together as a unit. As we prepare to open God's Word, I want you to think of a time in which perhaps there was this disconnect between what you felt and what you knew or what you believed. The disconnect between what you felt was true or felt was happening and what you believed. Um, and perhaps this could be lighthearted. Um, if you've ever flown on an airplane, um, I've flown quite a few times and it doesn't phase me at all these days, but maybe you can remember the first time you ever flew on an airplane. You probably believed that this airplane was going to get you from point A to point B. You probably wouldn't have got on the airplane if you didn't think so. But for a lot of people, their first time flying, it's, there's a little bit, is it really going to get me there? Uh, where did this guy go to school? <laughs> Can I really trust this airplane to get me from here to there? And so even though you know that this airplane is reliable and it's safe, you might not feel that way. It's still a scary experience the, the first time, perhaps, for some people. Some people, maybe it never phases them at all. Or perhaps, um, if you have been a student or are a student, or perhaps in the future, if you ever will become a student, um, there's this, perhaps this time when you, I'm not talking about the slackers, those who are just like show up the day of the test and haven't studied. So that's you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who have studied and they prepared and they know the material frontwards and backwards. They, they know that they're ready and they know that they know what they need to know, but there's still this sort of fear, right? As they take the test, like, I know I'm prepared, but I don't feel prepared. Or what if they ask a question I didn't think about? So there's this disconnect between knowing I'm ready. I know the material, but I don't feel prepared. Or perhaps, um, and this, I, I think of my own experience, many of you um, have had the experience of asking somebody to marry you, um, and perhaps some of you will in the future. By the way, professional tip, uh, you should know the answer to the question before you ask it. Okay? That's just, I did, by the way, but I'm just, <laughs> you should know the, the, question, the answer to the question before you ask. If not, you might want to wait a little longer. Um, but... Even though I know what the answer is going to be, there's still a certain nervousness as you prepare to ask the question. I remember um, you know, the eating dinner um, with who was my girlfriend at the time um, and having the engagement ring in my pocket. And I knew the engagement ring was in my pocket. I knew that. But it didn't, is it really there? I got to check again. Like I was playing with the, the ring for the, the whole time during dinner, kept reaching in, making sure it's there. I knew it was there. But there was this fear of like, what if I'm about to propose and oh no, I don't have the ring, right? So there's this disconnect between what you know and, and what you feel. Or to take this more seriously, and I think this is really the situation of today's text, the situation of the psalm. Perhaps in your relationship with God, is there a disconnect between what you know, like you have your theology all right, and what you feel? You know that God is all-powerful. You know that God is in control. You know that God is sovereign. But when you look at your life, it feels like there's nobody at the helm. It feels like nobody's in control. It feels so out of control that it doesn't feel as if God 
is in charge. Or perhaps you know, because you've read your Bible and you've heard it before, you know that God loves you and cares for you as, your, as his child, but you don't feel God's love and you don't feel God's care. You know that God is in all places. He's omnipresent, that there is nowhere you can go to be away from the presence of the Lord. You don't feel that God is there. Or when you pray, you know that God hears you, but it feels as if your prayers are bouncing off of the ceiling. There's a disconnect. If somebody were to tell you, well, God is everywhere, you say, I I know. (laughs) That God can hear your prayer, I know. But it doesn't feel as if that's true. This disconnect between what you know to be true about God, what you know is true about your relationship with God, what you know to be true about the character of God, and what you feel about who God is or your relationship with God. And I think that that is really the setting for the the text that we're going to look at this morning. This is a reminder, Psalms are poems. They're like music without notes, And we sang part of a psalm this morning, actually part of the psalm that we're going to to study today. Um, We sang it with notes, and they probably originally were sung that way. But they come in different styles and different emphases. So some psalms focus on on praise. The psalm that we looked at last week was a psalm with wisdom and and thanksgiving elements, as David instructed God's people on how to respond to God with a repentant heart and a thankful heart. But other psalms, and the psalms that we're going to look at um, this morning, other psalms are laments. They're laments. Um, they're actually the largest number of the psalms by category are laments. There's more laments than any other kind of psalm. But they express deep sorrow and deep trouble. And sometimes they're personal. It's an individual sorrow and trouble. Sometimes it's communal. It's, it's Israel is in trouble. God's people are in trouble. And it's a cry out to God for help. And the psalm that we're going to look at today is, is a lament. Um, The setting of the psalm is a a little difficult to configure, but there are some things that we can gather. Um, He perhaps is a, he seems to be a refugee. He is someone who has gone on pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He remembers going to Jerusalem on these pilgrimages. And uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people would several times a year, they would all gather together as God's people and worship God in Jerusalem. It must have been an amazing experience as everyone around you is singing and they're dancing and there's joy and there's music. And there's just a lot of people that gives you a certain feeling of, yeah, God is here and everybody around me is worshiping the true and living God. So he remembers that, but now he's far from Jerusalem. He speaks of being... Uh, by Mount Hermon, which if you know the, the geography of Israel, Mount Hermon is about as far north as you can get. It's about as far away from Jerusalem as you can be and still be in Israel. So he's separated from God. He's far away from the temple. He's far away from this experience of worshiping God. He talks about an enemy. And then later, as he develops, it talks about an enemy nation. So perhaps this is um, a situation, maybe Babylon, before the temple was destroyed, because he talks about the temple as, having, as still existing. So perhaps this is the early days where Babylon has sacked um, Jerusalem and taken pe- captives out and spread some of them out. He's separated from God's people. He's separated from Jerusalem. He's separated from the temple. And his heart's longing, his heart's desire is to go back to Jerusalem, to worship the living God, to be with God's people, but he can't. And I think that's probably the setting of the psalm. And what is unique about the psalm And what I I really love about this psalm, and I think that all of us can identify with this, is that many of the laments, the psalmist says he struggles with God. 
that's not this psalm. There's perhaps a bit of a feeling like God is distant. He wants God to, to show up, but he believes that God's going to show up. Sometimes psalms are struggling with, their, with enemies. There's enemies, and, and they're gathered against me, and there's elements of that. There are enemies taunting him. But what's unique about this psalm, and what I think all of us can identify with, is what the psalmist is most struggling with in 42 and 43 is his struggle with himself, his internal struggle, this disconnect between what he knows is true about the God of Israel, what he knows is true about the God of the Bible, and what he feels. And he is shepherding his own heart. He is telling himself what he knows to be true and reminding himself of what he knows to be true. He has the answers. He knows what he should do. But he has to remind himself of that. And he's speaking the truth to himself, reminding himself, shepherding his own heart. So today's text is his heart cry, um, heartfelt cry out to God in the midst of feelings of abandonment, feelings of distance from God. And in these two psalms, the psalmist shepherds his own heart to continue to direct his hope in the Lord for his present and future. Before we look at the text, would you pray with me? Father, I I thank you for your word that you have revealed to us. Um, And Father, I thank you that in your word you remind us of truths. You also meet us where we're at, that you speak to us in ways that we can understand. And um, you speak to us in words, we can understand the words. But in the Psalms so often, you speak to us through the experiences of your people and experiences that we can understand too. And so Father, I'm sure there's no one in this room who hasn't experienced trouble and sorrow And Father, many, if not all of us, have experienced feeling that you're distant from us and feeling as if our prayers are not heard. So Father, thank you for this text which speaks into that. Father, I also thank you for sending us your your son, that you sent us your son and and your son, Jesus, he experienced what we, we experience, yet without sin. He experienced rejection from people. He experienced trouble and persecution. He experienced mockery on the cross, and even on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus um, as someone who understands our weaknesses, that you you don't hit us with with the big stick of your word, but that you meet us, and you draw us, and you comfort us, and you um, remind us of what is true and what is right. So Father, I pray that your spirit will work in your people today through your word. Remind us of the truth of who you are and who we are in you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read kind of stanza by stanza, so remembering the Psalms are like songs, and um, so I'm not going to read the whole text at once. I'm going to read the first four verses, so if you keep your Bible open, um, I will be continuing to refer to the text. So Psalm 42, beginning with verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So the psalmist opens with likening himself to to a thirsty deer, as a deer pants for flowing streams. And I I think when I normally think of deer, um, I, I, I think of them in more like a Washington setting. 
So I took my kids um, hiking in Mount Rainier a couple of days ago, and we saw a deer with two fawns. Um, but in Mount Rainier, it's green, it's lush, there are flowing streams. Um, but remember, this text is written in Israel, and I've never been to Israel. But from what I've heard, Israel's a little bit different. Now, you think about the Negev, the wilderness, the desert, the Israelites wandering around in the desert, lacking water. And this is more that kind of setting. This is a deer panting for water. It's not just a little thirsty. It's desperate. It's not a camel. He's not a ship that goes across the, the desert, right? This is he's a, he's a deer, and it's not a dog. I know you think of like dogs as panting or wolves as panting, and probably you remember that kind of an image. But this is, a, this is an animal that's prey. This is an animal that's vulnerable. This is an animal that's hunted. And this is an animal that needs water. And it's looking for water in a dry land, looking for water in the wilderness. So in likening himself to a deer, the psalmist is highlighting his vulnerability and desperate dependence on God. He is not self-sufficient. He's not ignorant of his need. He needs God, and he knows it. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty, um, but I, I remember one time I, I like to take my kids on, on um, road trips, and we, we a couple of years ago, uh, my boys and I were in um, southern Utah. We were at Bryce Canyon um, during the summer. And we went on this hike, and it was about a half a mile from the parking lot to where the hike began. And when we get there, I realized that my boys didn't bring water. They had forgot, both of them had forgotten their water bottles. And I didn't want to go back to the car and then back. It's like, oh, come on. So I, I have one water bottle, and there's a short version of the hike that won't take very long, and that's what we're going to do. But somewhere, I took a wrong turn, and we, we ended up on the horse trail. I don't know how it happened, but now we're on the horse trail, and there's nobody around, and I don't know whether to turn back, because that's kind of a longer ways than I thought I was going, or whether to keep going and I will eventually get on. And the water bottle, the one water bottle we have, and I have a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, you know, it's getting lower and lower. Um, So to make a long story short, I did what you're not supposed to do. I left the trail, climbed up the canyon. I did it first. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's the trail. Got the kids back. We got back. And then as we're walking back, it's like every, when we get to that spot, I'll give you a little bit of water. And when we get to that spot, a little bit of water. And eventually somebody had pity on us. They heard me saying this and they gave us water and we were saved. We were delivered. Um, But there was this feeling of being really thirsty. And as a parent, your kids are really thirsty and they're little. And I don't want one of them to pass out, right? There's this desperation that that comes with that. And we were around people. So it wasn't the desperation that we have in the the psalm. I love the song that we sang leading into um, into the, the service here this morning. And I think it captures the, the psalm really well. Um, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. That's exactly what this psalm is about. This psalm is that the, the, the psalmist is longing, desiring for God. He has a holy desire to worship God, to be with God, and to have fellowship with him. The one problem I have with the song, and it might be a me problem, not the song problem, is the song doesn't sound desperate to me. The psalm, is, it's too beautiful. It's too well put together. And this, is, this, is a, this psalm is a desperate deer who's dying of thirst and can't find a stream, but it knows it needs water. And that's what the psalmist says. I need you, God. I know what I need. And I'm vulnerable, and I'm weak, and I'm desperate. I'm, I'm, I'm like a deer panting for 
water, thirsting for God. My soul, soul in, in Hebrew really is more the whole person. So this isn't just like my spiritual side of myself is, is thirsting for God. It's my whole being is, is thirsting for God, panting after um, the water that only he can provide. Um, he's thirsty for the presence of God, but he can't get to Jerusalem. And we see that later. So remember, again, the pilgrimages on which they would go to Jerusalem and worship God at the temple, and he can't get there. There's something that's preventing him from being able to, to go on this journey. But uh, something I love about this psalm is that he is obstinate in, in a good way. There's a tenacity, a holy tenacity, that he won't settle for less than the living God, than the true God. The, the, his enemies are mocking him. Where is your God? Where is your God? And they can point to their gods. They have gods of stone. They have gods of wood. And they can say, there's my God. Or they can point to the sun and the moon and say, there is my God. But he doesn't have that option. He believes in the real God, the God who created those things. And he can't just point to them. He, he, has, to, he has to believe and he has to trust and he has to have faith. But there's this tenacity. I, I'm not going to settle for the gods of wood and of stone. I'm not going to settle for the sun and the moon. I'm going to settle for, settle for only the living God and I'm going to pursue him. But there's a kind of suffering that goes with not being satisfied for lesser, lesser things, not being satisfied with substitutes for the real thing. So there's a hunger and a thirst for the real God, for the living God, for the true God, for the creator God, for the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and this tenacity that he won't settle for less. When will I appear? So although the psalmist is longing for God's presence, God feels distant. His deepest longing, and I can imagine him in prayer saying, God, what I want is to feel your presence, to feel joy and fellowship with you, what could possibly be wrong with that? Like, this isn't somebody who's asking for something that I'm not sure if this is something I should have or not. Like, what he wants so deeply is fellowship and communion with God. And you can just imagine him struggling with God in prayer. It's like, God, why won't you help me to feel your presence and your love once again? So he won't settle for less. So his deepest longings for fellowship, but his prayers seem to be met. With silence, he feels abandoned and forgotten. My, my tears are my food. Uh, the only thing I have to drink are my tears, is the idea. So when, when will I appear before the living God? And then there's these enemies, and, and it gets developed and expanded throughout the psalm. At first, it's just a they. Who are they? But they say, where is your God? They say, where is your God? And again, in a pagan context, they can point. This is my God. This is my God. Where is your God? It's not really doing much for you. You're, you're suffering. You're an exile. You're a refugee. So these things I remember. So the psalmist then remembers. And I think this is, this is a kind of memory that's both a comfort and a pain. And maybe you can, you can identify with that. It's a comfort in that he can remember the presence of God. And he can remember the joy of this, this fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. But there's the pain that goes with it of, that's not what I'm experiencing now. It used to be this way. I can remember traveling to Jerusalem. So he, he remembers going up to the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps on a pilgrimage, with shouts of joy and praise. Times used to be so good. His longings to return to what once was. It's possible, the Hebrew could be read a couple of different ways, but it's possible that he was actually a leader in the worship. So he was somebody that led the congregation in worship as they went to Jerusalem. 
And he can remember those times, and he can remember this feeling of God's presence and God's love and God's favor. But now that seems to be gone. So he is longing to return to what once and he, what once was. And he's essentially telling God, God, my deepest desire is to be able to praise you and worship you again like it used to be. So then verse 5, and this verse 5 gets repeated three times throughout these psalms. It's kind of the refrain. It's the psalmist turning to himself and having some self-talk, responding to, telling himself what he needs to know. He already, I mean, what he already knows, but he doesn't feel. He's reminding himself of what is and an expression of faith. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Then he tells himself what he knows he needs to do. Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. He believes that God will deliver him. He believes that God will come through and that he will praise him for his goodness. So this refrain of verse 5 is going to be repeated two other times. He knows the answer to his sorrows is to draw closer to God. And if you're following along with filling out your notes, there's this disconnect between what he knows and what he feels which I'm sure so many of us have experienced. There's a disconnect between what he knows, that God's in control, that God is good, that God loves him, that God will deliver him in the end. He knows those things. He doesn't feel those things. So he's reminding himself of what he needs to know. And this stanza is his attempt to align what he feels about God with what he knows to be true. So the first stanza of the poem pictures this deer desperately looking for water in the wilderness as an image of the psalmist looking for God and longing for his presence. The second stanza is kind of ironic in a, in a sad, troubling way. That he's like, God, I'm, I'm thirsty for you. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking for you. I just want a, a drink of relief. And then the second stanza is I'm drowning in troubles. It's like I, I wanted a drink and now I'm drowning. And it, it, I'm drowning not in the presence of the Lord, but in troubles and and trials and difficulties. So starting uh, back up in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Again, that's as far away from Jerusalem as you can get, still be in Israel. So the worship of God takes place at the temple. He's as far away as he can get. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord used to command his steadfast love, and by night, his song was with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go to mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And then the enemies reappear as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And they say to me all day long, where is your God? So in the second stanza, the psalmist's thirst turns into drowning. Have you ever felt that way? Like you cry out for help, and then it just seems like things are getting worse, and now you're drowning in troubles and sorrows. That's what he's feeling. So whether it's literal, metaphorically, that he's far away from Jerusalem, I, I, I take it literally. I think that's probably the setting of the psalm, that he is a refugee taken away, um, or perhaps he's just seeing it as, I'm, I feel far from God's presence and far from the worship of God. But he is far from the center of worship for the God of Israel. He is called out to the Lord as a thirsty man dying of thirst, but it seems as if God's response has been to drown him 
and wave after wave after wave breaks over him, and he's just not sure he's going to be able to stand and keep standing. My soul is cast down. But, and I don't know if you noticed it in the text as we read, and, and there's, there's maybe a, a comfort and a pain in this as well, but there is, there's some hope in the way that he, he phrases this. Did you notice he says, your waves are breaking over me. And what that is saying is he knows that God is the God of the waves, that God is the God who's in charge of the storms. He's not seeing as this, this, this random things that are happening to him. He believes that God is still sovereign. God is in control, that God could stop these waves if he, if he wished. So he goes to God because he knows that God is able to deliver him. So your waves are washing over me. In a sense, it feels as if God is drowning him. And I think there's a, that's a source of pain. But it's also, there's a hope that you're the one who is in charge of the waves. You're the one with power over the waves. You're the one with power over these troubles and these sorrows and this persecution and oppression that I'm, I'm feeling and experiencing. And the, 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 by day, the Lord commands or will command, or different translations say it differently. Um, it can be taken as kind of future, like the Lord will command his steadfast love, and maybe that's an expression of faith. It can kind of be also understood as something that used to go on in the past. The Lord used to command his, his steadfast love over me, and his, and his song used to be with me, but now it's not. But either way, I don't think this is his experience now. He's not feeling God's steadfast love. He's not feeling his song with him in the day. Instead, he feels forgotten. He feels forgotten. And his enemies are taunting him. He remembers the past, but it seems like God has forgotten him. And this taunting of the enemies, um, it says in the text, is as with a deadly wound in my bones, how the ESV translated it. Literally, it's like murder in my bones. And so it's like gripping image, like their words are murdering his bones, like he's his, the, so, so much inner turmoil coming from this mockery from those on the outside who are saying, where is your God? And they say, where is your God? And where is your God? And he's still suffering. God still feels far, and God still doesn't seem to be responding to him. And it's, it's murder in his bones. He hears the taunts of his enemies. And again, I mentioned this, but there's a... The pagans have an advantage here. Where is your God? I can see my God. I don't see your God. But there's also an answer to this question that in in the cultural context and religious context of the day, there's an answer to where is your God? He's in Jerusalem. Because in the ancient world, people kind of believed that gods were localized. They were in one place. So the psalmist is removed from Jerusalem. He can't get to Jerusalem. He used to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. So he can't get to the presence of the Lord. And that's probably part of the taunt. Like, where's your God? He's in Jerusalem. You can't get there. But there's something about this psalm that also turns that on its head. Because this psalm is a prayer. He's not in Jerusalem, but he prays this prayer to God because he's the living God who can still hear him. There are psalms in the Psalter of prayers from Babylon as you're taken into captivity. You're far away from Israel, but my God can still hear me. He created the heavens and the earth. So this is a, this prayer being removed from Jerusalem, being removed from the temple, being removed from the presence of God is also an expression of faith that my God isn't like the other gods. He's the God of heaven and the earth. He can hear me in my exile. He can hear me as a refugee. He can hear me when I'm far from home. And again, he won't settle for less. He could forsake the true God and go with the, the gods of the peoples around him. 
He could forsake the living God and, and fit in better with his, his culture. But no, he's, there's a tenacity here in his sorrow and his suffering and his pain. I won't settle for, I want the living God and I, I won't settle for substitutes. So I say to God, my rock, and rock should remind you of, um, of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament loves to kind of remind you of things in the past. It doesn't usually use these sort of metaphors accidentally. So there's a song of Deuteronomy that refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel, as a rock. And that's bringing to mind um, in the Old Testament, in, the, in Exodus, if you remember. And this, maybe in a sense, this is a metaphor doing double duty. But if you remember in Exodus, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they didn't have water, and they cried out to God, we don't have water. And water came out of a rock. Like, you wouldn't expect water to come out of a rock. And in that sense, his thirst, he's saying, I say to God, my rock, he's remembering the Exodus. It was also, as he's drowning, a rock is a firm place to stand. And a rock is a place that you can be in times of storm and trouble. So I say to God, my rock, and perhaps he's thinking of one or the other, or perhaps he's thinking of both. But he connects to Deuteronomy and to, to Exodus. And then he asks this, he, his response to this feeling of despair and abandonment is to direct his eyes. Such an important thing to do. Where are you looking? Direct his eyes and his hopes to the living and true God. Where else can he turn? But his question is, why do I go into mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. And that, that's also a question of, a, a real question. But there's faith in it. Because he, why am I going to mourning? Because I know you're more powerful than they are. So why am I being oppressed? Why am I in trouble? Because I know you could deliver me. So this is a cry of like, why are you not delivering me? But it's a cry that comes from, from faith. It's a question of faith to the living God. And then the second time in the psalm, we get this stanza of him turning inward and shepherding his own heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. So then picking up in Psalm 43, and structurally, uh, laments usually follow a format of, there's the lament, there's the cry out to God, this is my trouble, and then there's the request to God, this is God, this is what I'm asking, and then there's a looking forward to like future praise, this is what I will do when you deliver me. And so Psalm 42 is the lament, and 43 is the request and the looking forward to future praise. So they, do, they fit together as a single lament. So Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And then this is the request. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let, me. let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then this is the future looking forward, what he will do. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God. So Psalm 40, 43, although it's certainly intended to be a unit with 42, represents a shift He's still longing for the presence of God, but those, those mocking comments, those, those mocking, those jeers from his enemies are getting louder and louder in his ears, and now he's longing for vindication. He's longing for vindication. 
He, he wants the presence of God. We see that. He's like, I want go to the altar of God. Go to the holy hill. But he's, God, vindicate me against an unjustly people. Defend my cause. And you see here that what was first started with they, as the ones who are his enemies, and then his enemies who are oppressing him, now it's a people, an ungodly people. And perhaps that helps us with the setting. Maybe it's Babylon. Maybe it's somebody else. But there's this nation um, that is that is oppressing him, and he's crying out for help. He's crying out for deliverance, for vindication. He's using court language, and he's not doubting he's in the right. There are psalms where he's like, you know, God, try my cause. See if there's any anything wrong, anything evil within me. He knows he's in the right. He knows he's in the right. And so God, vindicate me. Prove that I'm in the right. Prove that I'm going to the right God. Prove that I'm going to the right source. So again, this is a righteous desire for vindication because it's the desire for God to prove he is who he says he is, for God to glorify himself in delivering him. So vindicate me because I'm going to you. You're my refuge. You're my rock. You're the, one in the, you're the only one I can go to. Um, sending out your light and your truth. Often in, in Scripture, light is um, used symbolically of God's word. Like It's a light to our path. It helps us to understand who God is. It le- helps us to understand how we ought to live. So your light, perhaps, is God's word. And then truth is God's faithfulness to his covenant. So this is like, uh, send out your light, show me the truth, and also show that you are faithful to your covenant, the covenant that you've made with Israel, the covenant you've made to the covenant people. Um, Just send out your light and your truth. Show your covenantal fidelity. And then, so twice earlier, the psalmist looked to the past. He remembered going to Jerusalem and worshiping God on pilgrimage. He looked, he remembered God being his song and God's steadfast love, love being with him. But now the psalmist is looking to the future. I will go to the altar of God. So he looks to the future and he believes he will be delivered. He will once again return to the Lord's dwelling and praise the Lord's faithfulness. So this is a response of faith, trust, and hope in the midst of sorrow and trouble. And he has this new name for God that he hasn't, he's called God his refuge and here he calls God, my exceeding joy is how the, the ESV. So he's looking forward to this time when God will deliver him. God will answer his prayer. God, my exceeding joy. So God is the, his desire. Fellowship with God is his desire. And having joy in that fellowship with God, he believes it will happen in the future. And then once again, the psalm closes with this refrain for the third time where he turns back to himself. He shepherds his own soul why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And it directs his heart. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There are a couple echoes of this psalm in the New Testament that I, I think help give us a wider perspective. First, I remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they will be satisfied. And there's a certain holy non-satisfaction that we should have where the things of this world, the gods of this world, the substitutes for the true God that are alluring. Oh, that's not good enough. I want the true God. And that's what the psalmist hears. I'm hungering, I'm thirsting for the true God. And Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, they may suffer in the now. He talks about being persecuted, 
for my sake. They may suffer in the now, but they will be satisfied. And in some sense, that's an answer to the psalmist's cry that maybe not now, but that hunger and that thirst will be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And then lest we think that God is up there just watching us suffer and watching us feel abandoned. Um, Jesus is, is a model of this psalm. He actually likely quotes it in Mark 14 when Jesus is on his way to um, Gethsemane with his disciples. Um, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, which quotes the Greek Septuagint translation of this um, and tells his disciples to remain here and watch. My soul is sorrowful even to death as he approaches the cross. And then as you remember, as Jesus is put on the cross, what do his enemies cry out? <laughs> they mock him and they taunt him. Like, oh, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from this cross? Why doesn't your God show up to deliver you if you really are who you say you are? The taunts sound somewhat familiar after we've gone through 42 and 43. And then what some of Jesus' last words on the cross sound very much like this psalm, though he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus says on the cross. So this is a, this is a psalm that is echoed in the life of Jesus as well. So where is God? Where is God? And in, in the days of the pagans, it's very easy. There's the sun, there's the moon, there's the rock, there's the, there's the tree. I can point out my God. And I, I think actually similarly in our world, the false gods, the substitute gods, are, are pretty easy to see. Um, success, money, wealth, power. You can see the results of that right away and get tangible results right away. Feel the, the pleasures of this world very quickly. And you, we can feel that same thing, whether it's internal or maybe external. Maybe people are actually saying that to us. Or maybe it's, it's temptation. As we look at the things of the world that seem sweet and seem satisfying and seem better and seem like they would have quicker results, where is your God? Because you're suffering. And you could be doing other things. You could be doing other things. So that same cry of where is your God? I think of the martyrs and the persecuted church. This isn't always easy, is it? You're people who, who refused, they had that holy tenacity of refusing substitutes. They say, just pray to Caesar. And you don't have to go to the lions. Pray to Caesar and we won't crucify you. Like, no, Caesar's not God. <laughs> Caesar's not Lord. Caesar is not the Savior of the world. Jesus is. And they refused to settle for less, and they died for it. They died for it because they wouldn't settle for substitutes. They wouldn't settle for less than the true and living God. And perhaps it's you. Perhaps you're suffering just internally or externally or both but you're suffering as you long for righteousness and you're not satisfied with the things of this world and it just seems like so long. It just seems like so long. You, maybe you, some of the, of the prayer of the psalmist, you've, you've prayed in your heart, like, God, I, I want fellowship with you. I want to enjoy your presence and I don't feel it. Maybe I know you hear me, but I don't feel it. And that's his heart's desire. Um, you suffer because you're longing for righteousness. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Maybe, I don't want to say just, because this may actually feel like a pretty heavy thing. Maybe you just don't feel like God hears you, or you just don't feel like 
God is there. You just don't feel like God cares about you. You don't feel God's presence. And the psalmist here, I think, gives us a model for shepherding our hearts. And we know this. There's a difference between what we know and what we feel. That doesn't make our feelings easy and just easy to dismiss and say, okay, well, I know that's not true. There's a suffering that goes with it. But there's a difference. We know God is present. We don't always feel it. Well, what's the answer? The answer is, is really very simple. I won't call it easy. It's, it's simple. So when you feel like God is absent, pray. When you feel like God doesn't hear you, pray. When you feel like your answers are bouncing off the ceiling, pray. When you feel like God is far from you, pray. When you don't feel like praying, pray. Keep going to God. That tenacity of not settling for anything less. Because there's, there's always that temptation. I could be doing other things. That looks like a lot of fun right now. Or that would be easier. My 401k is tangible. <laughs> Trusting in God is less so, right? At times. And so there's this, this holy tenacity that I think is, is modeled for us here. The world's gods are dead idols. Only accept the living God. So, but what is God's response? What is God's response? Well, I think we can see this most clearly with Jesus. Jesus was vindicated. God didn't leave Jesus dead. That God raised him from the dead, which is not something that people can do. It's something only God can do. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a vindication that Jesus was who he said he was. It was a vindication that Jesus was the Messiah. It was a vindication that Jesus was God's son. It was a vindication that Jesus' message was true. It was a vindication that Jesus' work was finished, that he paid on the cross. And Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' vindication previews our resurrection and our vindication because there will come a day when there will be no more pain or sorrow or tears, or evil, and sin. There will be a day when wrong is, is conquered and defeated. And there will be a day when new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and there is no more separation. There is no more distance, felt or real, between us and God. That will come. And we don't know the end of the story. I kind of wish we did. But we don't know the end of the story. Did, this, did the psalmist make it to Jerusalem? I don't know. We don't know. He has faith that God's going to deliver him. He trusts in God. What we do know is that he, he will worship God again in New Jerusalem when things are restored, that, there's, that, that it points to something greater and bigger um, and more perfect and more holy um, in the future. So whether or not we, we have our prayers and our cries answered in the now, there is coming a day when all of those things will be put right. So God's promises, we need to remind ourselves of God's promises. Again, this is simple. We, we know these things. The psalmist here, he knows these things. What's he telling himself? It's not a profound message. Hope in God, he will deliver me. Hope in God, he will deliver me. So remind yourselves of God's promises. Remind each other of God's promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Or the, one of the last things he said before he, he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He has not forgotten you. And Jesus' resurrection is a, is a down payment, is a preview of what he will do to vindicate us as God's people as well. Um, please pray with me as we close. 
Father, I thank you for your word. And once again, Father, I thank you that in your word that you reveal who you are. And Father, that you reveal your love for us, your concern for us. And Father, in a sense, this psalm is evidence that you hear us. That it's inclusion in your word echoes the cries of our hearts. And you hear those cries. And Father, we, we have faith and trust that you will, you will someday vindicate our faith and trust in you. And we know that you will because you raised Jesus from the dead. That Jesus is who he says he is. But Father, we're weak. We need your help. So Father, I pray that your spirit will, will remind us of these truths. Father, speak through your word in our hearts. Father, use, um, use us to speak your truth to each other. Re- each other, remind us that you are with us, that you will not forsake us. You have not forgotten us. Father, thank you that your spirit cries out with our spirit as we groan um, in, in trouble and in pain. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you didn't just watch our trouble and our pain from afar, but that Jesus entered into this mess of humanity. He was, for, he was forsaken. He was betrayed. He was crucified and mocked. And thank you that you raised him from the dead and that we look forward to our resurrection someday as well. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. Amen.